0: Hello and welcome to the SRNA Ask the Expert podcast series, research edition. This podcast is titled Increased Intracranial Pressure in Pediatric MOG Antibody Disease. My name is Chrissy Dilger, and I moderated this podcast. SRNA is a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune disorders. You can learn more about us on our website at wearesrna.org. Our Ask the Expert podcast series is sponsored in part by Amgen, Olaxan AstraZeneca Rare Disease, and UCB. For this podcast, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Cynthia Wang and Dr. Linda Wen. Dr. Wang is a neurologist at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center and a former James T. Lubin Fellow. Dr. Wen is a neuroimmunology fellow at the University of Texas Southwestern. You can view their full bios in the podcast description. Welcome and thank you both for joining me today. To start us off, Dr. Wang, can you provide a brief explanation of what
1: MOG antibody disease is? Sure. Yeah. So, MOG antibody disease or MOG antibody associated disease, uh, MOGAD, we've uh, termed just for for speediness, it's primarily. I think we mostly know this as central nervous system, acute demyelinating syndrome, though sometimes peripheral nervous system involvement has been noted. We know that it's distinct from multiple sclerosis and your myelitis optica associated with aquaporin-4 antibodies, though it can present similarly with symptoms of vision loss or weakness. The diagnosis hinges on detecting MOG antibodies, primarily in the blood, and MOG is a protein on myelin and myelin-producing cells. And there are certain clinical syndromes that we associate with it. Classically, it's been acute disseminating encephalomyelitis, particularly in younger children. Kind of across the board, children and uh, adults, we see optic neuritis. Uh, Myelitis or spinal cord inflammation is another manifestation. And as we've had these tests that have allowed us to, to, to do more investigation in other syndromes, we found that brain inflammation including in just the cortex where seizures may be the primary manifestation or parts of the brain, such as the cerebellum, the brainstem, or isolated parts of the brain where you don't get the encephalopathy or the kind of the the change in mental status we see with ADAM is also possible. One of the things I like to tell families is, you know, it's one of the diagnosis I like giving because it doesn't often pretend necessarily a chronic or relapsing condition like multiple sclerosis and NMO. There's, you know, different data sets, but probably a third to half the time. If we follow these patients long enough, we'll see a relapse, but typically if recognized quickly and treated quickly, the likelihood of disability is low. And, and I would say, yeah, the, the research has really accelerated in the last five years with commercial availability of the testing and just earlier this year, International Consensus Group came up with the first proposed criteria for MOG antibody-associated disease. So yeah, I think it's an exciting time to be in in this field and looking at MOG. Awesome. Thank you for that overview. And yeah, I I agree.
0: It sounds like an exciting place to be for for the future. Dr. Nguyen, how did you become interested in researching um, MOG antibody disease?
2: Yeah, you know, as Dr. Wang was alluding to, it's it's distinct from multiple sclerosis and uh, NMOSD associated with aquaporin four uh, antibody, and it's the most recently described of the CNS demyelinating disorder. So while there's increasing knowledge on its various clinical presentations, it, it remains a disease that there's a lot left to be studied including what factors at onset uh, may be associated with long-term outcomes, especially if you have uh, you know, a monophasic disease course or a relapsing disease course. And then I think another feature I was particularly like interested in is because different from MS and uh, NMO, um, which pre- predominantly affects adults, uh, MOGA can affect children in up to 50% of the reported cases, and then so while it's a rare disease overall, it makes up a substantial proportion of the patients we see in our pediatric neuroimmunology clinic.
0: Got it. Well, thank you. And we're we're happy that that you are interested in researching this disorder because it is rare and newer, as we mentioned before, and it's important that we learn more when we can. So can you talk about the background of this study? What led to the development of this particular research study?
2: Yeah, so so there's a few, you know, small case reports or case series mentioning increased intracranial pressure uh, in patients with MOGAD. And by increased intracranial pressure, I'm saying there's increased pressure inside the skull, around the brain. And because this is a closed system, that comprises of fixed brain tissue, blood, and spinal fluid volume, if there's increased pressure in this compartment, that this can lead to brain damage or spinal cord damage. Because uh, there's pressure on the important structures, and so this can add, uh, you know, to the injury that's already being caused by the inflammation from the underlying disease process. And so we were noticing that, you know, a good number of our patients had increased intracranial pressure, and there were questions arising on how do we like manage these patients. And so I was i carried we carried out this particular research study to one determine the frequency of increased intracranial pressure in pediatric patients with mogad and then two to evaluate the association with increased or of increased intracranial pressure with long term outcomes
1: yeah and i think i think it's just to echo off what Dr. Wen said, you know, I think intuitively it would always be like these young patients that were, you know, very obtunded, meaning that, you know, they weren't responding, they often need to go to the ICU for uh, management of breathing because they were, you know, their mental style was so depressed. And yeah, I think, you know, there was this sense that if it's a young person with very acute onset of very widespread inflammation, that they tend to do poorly and you know, when we didn't have some sort of objective measure to go on in terms of knowing what they're, you know, what was happening in the brain, whether we did neuroimaging or we had some other measure to measure increased intracranial pressure, it just seemed like we would be flying without, you know, you know, a compass or any navigational tools. I can sometimes feel like it's like, you know, we have this precarious plane that we need to land. And then if you don't have any of those tools, then it becomes really hard to know what you need to do to get um, somebody through that. So yeah, I think it's just amazing the work she did to put um, some objective numbers and see what our um, institution's experience has been. So yeah, great work. Awesome.
0: And so what would you say is the broad research question this study was attempting to answer, Dr. Nguyen?
2: Yeah, you know, we were just really trying to figure out if there was a difference in outcomes between patients that had elevated opening pressure, uh, which is indicative of uh, increased intracranial pressure. And and by opening pressure, I was referring to increased opening pressure on lumbar puncture, Um, and then compared to patients that had normal opening pressure, and seeing if there was a difference in outcomes there. And then, and then, directly asking if, for the patients that required, you know, management of increased intracranial pressure, how was their outcome, uh, on an individual basis.
0: Got it. Thank you. So how was the study set up? Was it retrospective number of patients, that kind of thing?
2: Yeah. So, so this is our own institution's experience. And this study was done retrospectively. We included about 86 pediatric patients that met the diagnostic criteria for MOGAD, as recently proposed by the International Consensus Criteria. And then we reviewed their clinical data from the first attack and then their long-term outcomes at last follow-up. The MoGAP patients that were included specifically were those that had increased intracranial pressure based on opening pressure measurements and, and or those that required any intervention to help offset or decrease that intracranial pressure at their first event. And then... And then, you know, as I mentioned, we define increased intracranial pressure for the group analyses based on the uh, lumbar puncture results. Uh, When uh, you do that procedure, you can have opening pressure obtained, and that can help serve as a proxy of what the pressure is in the central nervous system. And we define elevated opening pressure as greater than 28 uh, centimeters of water.
0: Got it. And so, Dr. Wynn, what were the findings from this study? Yeah.
2: So, in our cohort of 86 patients, and we found that of all those that had lumbar punctures done, about only 50 of the percent of them had opening pressure obtained. And so, we're working with a smaller cohort here. And then of these 50% of patients, 21% had elevated opening pressure. So that made up about nine patients total. And so of the nine, seven had ADEM or acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. One had optic neuritis, and then one had another phenotype that was an ADEM or optic neuritis. And so what we found in our group data was that in those with elevated opening pressure greater than 28 centimeters of water, uh, these patients were more likely to require an ICU stay, uh, required uh, medical or surgical uh, uh, interventions to help reduce intracranial pressure. They had longer hospitalizations longer long you know outpatient follow-up duration and importantly we found that they had higher there was a higher proportion with increased disability long term and then we also noted you know uh, because mogac present with many different uh presentations Of the nine that had elevated opening pressure, the majority of them were of the ADEM phenotype. And then, um, so that's in the group analysis. So in the individual, like case-by-case analysis, looking at patients who actually received any medical or surgical interventions, medical meaning like they had to undergo some hypertonic, saline boluses to control their sodium level or be first suppressed with phenobarbital or required surgical, neurosurgical procedures. We found that six of them had ADAM, or six of them had ADAM, and one of them had a presentation called cortical or cerebral cortical encephalitis. And so, I mean, overall, in these patients, these seven patients that require all these medical or surgical procedures, uh, you know they had all various income uh, outcomes, and they their clinical course in the hospital was all very different. But what was noticeable is that on long-term outcome, all of them had neural psych data available, and all of them had at least some deficit identified. So what this all means overall, what we found was, you know, overall, 21% of patients with MOGAT, especially those with ADEM, had increased intracranial pressure, and then this was associated uh, with a greater utilization of healthcare resources and worse uh, long-term outcomes. Got it. That's very interesting and
0: something that is good to know and, and I'm sure we'll... Will have implications moving forward so which leads me to my next question what do these findings mean for pediatric mogad patients and how they may you know be treated when upon onset of their disorder or, or in the d- disease course dr wing
1: yeah i i think you know the results are all you know i think very helpful to know where we need to go next You know, when I have conversations with families, I'm typically pretty optimistic. But I think this, especially, you know, the kind of the data is like generally people do well after ADAM and they make a recovery. But then it's always like, what 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 happens that 10 or 20 percent that don't do well? And I think we now have more definite characteristics of what those patients might look like in terms of their demographic features, in terms of this ADAM phenotype, and what they might look, you know, in the initial few days of being in the hospital, needing to be in the ICU, maybe needing other supportive services so yeah I think it really helps piece together you know what are the factors for long-term disability in MOG for many of these conditions we often wonder about like you know accrual of a disability with relapse but I think if you don't help mitigate you know potential disability at the very onset then you know th- that becomes a moot question so yeah I think So these situations also kind of have some interplay with how we maybe decide and uh, decide on the order or the sequencing of acute therapies. I think one thing that comes to mind is that, you know, we always want to do the most aggressive thing. We give the IV steroids. We want to start plasma free just throw the kitchen sink at patients what doctor Nguyen um is mentioning is that we need to maybe sometimes put on other hats in terms of not just being the neuroimmunologist and reaching toward our immunotherapies but thinking about you know other things that are very important to you know the physiology of patients such as getting you know proper oxygen and blood flow to the brain and intracranial pressure i think plays a big role in knowing how to 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 make those decisions so i think Early consideration and awareness of what medical and surgical interventions may be needed is really helpful. And any tools that we can develop to provide some sort of you know practice guideline so that we are more consistent about getting opening pressure, or we know early to involve the the neurointensivists or the neurosurgeons. So yeah, I think all those things are really critical and is definitely a jumping off point for further studies. Awesome.
0: And so kind of like you said, uh, for further studies, this is question is for both of you. Do you anticipate future, future, future iterations of this study will develop?
1: Dr. Wang, do you want to start us off? um yeah i think whenever we talk about retrospective data it's going to be automatic to say let's you know do a prospective data so we can be a little bit less biased about you know the sampling and things like that so i hope you know this could be something not only our institution but other institutions start to look at and again i think if we do find that some of the the tools whether it's you know doing the opening pressure looking at invasive and non invasive ways of measuring ICP, such as with ICP monitors. Our center uses other tools such as pupilometry. So I think, you know, finding what are good ways to assess this and, you know, follow those changes over time are really important. And yeah, I hope it just sheds light that this is, you know, more of a a team effort that it's not just consulting with the neuroimmunologist, but also knowing different aspects of how the patient is doing. You know, we sometimes don't think about vital signs and and like hemodynamics as much as other groups do. And I think that becomes really important in this situation. Yeah, I think those are definitely some of the things and yeah, you know, the brain is a closed box. So there's there's only so much we can do if the swelling is outpacing our ability to treat it. But, you know, if we can draw that process or spread that inflammation to absorb, you know, potential damage in different ways, I think that can be helpful to outcomes.
2: Definitely. Dr. Wen, do you have anything to add? Yeah, you know, those are really good points. I think we based on our experience, have noticed it, the increased intracranial pressure, we've noticed it more in MOGAD patients, but it's not exactly clear if this increased intracranial pressure is unique to MOGAD or other, you know, CNS demyelinating disorders like a multiple sclerosis or aquaporin four for NMOSD. And so I think next, at least what uh, we've been trying to do is uh, to explore this further, is implement um, routine measuring of uh, opening pressure uh, for all patients presenting with CNS demyelinating disorder Um, so that, uh, you know, as I was mentioning, only 50% of our patients had opening pressure measured. Mm -hmm. And so trying to make it more standardized can maybe increase that percentage and allow us better to study. Increase intracranial pressure overall, and I think this, along with the clinical exam, the neuroimaging, can allow us for uh, early stratification of risks for patients requiring either ICU care or and or you know neurosurgical consultations uh, much earlier in their disease or their presentation and hopefully earlier you know uh, awareness can improve outcomes.
0: Well great. Thank you so much both of you for for taking the time today to answer my questions and hopefully help our community learn about these this research that's going on because I think it's it's really important and it's great to have this access to this information for for people who are affected by these disorders. So Thank you again for joining me and hopefully we can continue the conversation.
1: Thank you, Chrissy. Always appreciate the invitation and yeah, being able to share the things that we're working on.
0: Thank you to our Ask the Expert podcast sponsors, Amgen, Alexion AstraZeneca Rare Disease, and UCB. Amgen is focused on the discovery, development, and commercialization of medicines that address critical needs for people impacted by rare, autoimmune, and severe inflammatory diseases. They apply scientific expertise and courage to bring clinically meaningful therapies to patients. Amgen believes science and compassion must work together to transform lives. Alexion AstraZeneca Rare Disease is a global biopharmaceutical company focused on serving patients with severe and rare disorders through the innovation, development, and commercialization of life-transforming therapeutic products. Their goal is to deliver medical breakthroughs where none currently exist, and they are committed to ensuring that patient perspective and community engagement is always at the forefront of their work. UCB innovates and delivers solutions that make real improvements for people living with severe diseases. They partner with and listen to patients caregivers, and stakeholders across the healthcare system to identify promising innovations that create valuable health solutions.